Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another exciting episode of Views on View. I am your host, Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime, but I am still your host. And I am hosting solo today as one of our hosts has a very sick child. My special, very, very special guest, excuse me, not special, very, is Andrew Welch. Andrew is the main host, I guess one of the hosts of the devmode.fm podcast. Uh, If any of you listen to that, I've been a big fan for a while. So I said, hey, Andrew, let's talk about Vue. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there, too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. So how are you doing, Andrew? Good. How about yourself, Steve? I appreciate you uh, having me on. Oh, my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. So for starters, why don't you tell us about yourself a little bit, what you do, why you're famous, all the the tech-related stuff, and even non-tech-related, I guess. Well, hopefully I'm not really famous for anything, but my background is actually in iOS and Mac app development. I was a longtime iOS and Mac developer, and at some point decided that I kind of wanted to do something different in company and decided to get into this web thing. And I've been doing that for probably the past six or seven years. And I focus on performance, web performance as well as optimization. But typically, I don't do a ton of client work. I'm mostly building building blocks that other developers are using uh, to build with uh, a lot of the time for Craft CMS and a lot of the time using Vue.js with, with Nuxt. And that's, that's pretty much the long and the short of it. I also do a bunch of developer training, but that's about it. Yeah, I've heard you talk about your whole sorted job history in the past. Yeah. Um, now, now, what was the first time company that you fired yourself from? What, what kind of company was that? So it's a company that I actually started when I was in high school, and it was called Ambrosia Software. And we initially did Mac game video apps, and then got into iOS and started doing that for quite some time. And it really just kind of became one of those situations where I don't know. I mean, uh, I was doing it for so long. I just really didn't enjoy showing up at work anymore. I enjoyed creating things. I didn't enjoy managing people and running stuff. And I just decided that I needed to change. You know, I I did it for a really long time. It was well over 20 years. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. So now you'd mentioned Craft CMS. So before before listening to Dev Mode, I had never heard of it myself. And as many people who listen to this regularly know, I came from the Drupal world. Yep. Started early 2000s up through about two, three years ago. So Craft. I know it's in PHP because I've heard you talk about that before and had some extended conversations. Is it PHP, MySQL, that whole LAMP stack type approach that Craft is, or what's the tool set that it uses? Yeah, pretty much. It also works with Postgres, a couple of other databases, but yeah, right. pretty, basically a LAMP stack. Yeah, so it's SQL databases, not necessarily MySQL. It could be Postgres or MySQL, SQLite or something like that if you want to. Correct. And it also works headless. So people are using it for the content authoring experience on the back end. And then the front end can be in React, it can be in Vue, it can be in Svelte, it can be whatever you want. Or it could also be in the built-in Twig that Craft has. Okay, so Craft uses Twig for its templating system. Yeah, Drupal started out with, I'm not sure how familiar you are with its history, but it was using PHP template for a long time. Yep. 
And then a couple years with Drupal 8, it went to not invented here. So using Symphony 2 with Twig and Guzzle and a whole bunch of other external libraries to create it. So it sounds pretty familiar. So was Craft initially a monolith type of approach where you used you know, the templating on the front end and then eventually moved to the having the API for the headless approach? Or was it always that way from the beginning? Yeah, no, monolith. And then they added a GraphQL. They're an endpoint API actually first called the element API well layer to it. But yeah, it was originally a monolith thing because you think about it and the words content all about managing content. But a lot of these old like Drupal and, and Craft originally was a lot of you got was about the content rendering, mm-hmm. what you needed to do to render it on the front end, which when you think about it, you do with content management. Not, you know what I mean? It's just kind of interesting. Yeah, it's more content display. Yeah. Than con- content content pres- I think. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I can remember, you know, starting messing around with websites in the early days of Microsoft front page, you know, V1, <laughs> mm-hmm. when, you know, everything was HTML, CSS, that was all the technologies we had. And then you started getting ASP and then PHP for the dynamic stuff and, and hooking it all together and, and all that. So I think that's just, that was the tools that were available, you know, until right. until you started getting the JavaScript front ends coming in and people wanting to, to mix and match. So yeah, now Drupal went through the, the same, what's the tool I'm looking, migration uh, right. path, right. you know, so. So yeah, very similar. So now you said that your NY one oh NY Studio one oh seven, I remember is your is your company, New York Studio one oh seven. Quick question. So is the one oh seven from like the sweet number from your first office, or where does the one oh seven come from? <laughs> so this is gonna sound terrible, but <laughs> my wife long had this domain, NY Studio one oh seven that she wasn't uh-huh. using, she wasn't doing anything with it. Uh-huh. So I said, you know, that's kind of a cool name. Like I'll just take it and start using it. And it didn't occur to me. For a very long time, and this is so sad, I'm amazed that the 107 is her birthday, right? It's her, her month, and I didn't, it didn't, res- I don't know, it didn't occur to me for whatever reason. I mean, I I knew when her birthday was, right? Right. The connection between 107 and 107, you know what I mean? I don't know. But that's that's all there is to that name. Yeah. It's just me being me being a terrible husband, apparently. Just being a little bit dense, as I always say. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it's interesting hearing how some of the names come come from. I remember reading a blog post one time about where different like HTML response codes come from. And what got me thinking about that was the best history I've seen of 404 errors has to do with a room 404 and some building. I don't know if it was back at Netscape or something like that, where people were meeting and talking about this kind of thing. I'd have to look it up, but I just always remember that with 404 errors. So that's why what what caused me to think about that. Well, do either of you know what the HTTP response code 418 is. That's a good one. Sounds familiar. I've heard it, but off the top of my head, I don't recall. Or offhand either. Solomon, you got any ideas? He might not be hearing us, so I guess not. Okay, so the the 418 response (laughs) code is... Uh, Oh, there you are. Any idea what the response code 418 is? Where it comes from? I said no. I I don't have an idea for now. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, it's I'm a teapot. Okay, that's literally what it is. It's I'm a teapot, and it's this <laughs> this long running nerd about someone was joking around about putting a coffee pot on the response code for that, and then there was a, a joke that kind of spawned off of that. And the the funny thing, considered incredibly dumb, that it was going to be on the internet and would have a response code. But I'm not surprised. I bet you there is a coffee machine that sits on the internet. I bet you there is one. I bet it exists. Do you know where that comes from? I just had a pick about that last week because I saw an article about that coffee pot thing. How can it was the very first webcam and it was 
uh, if I remember correctly, it was at Stanford University, and there was some poor college, you know, grad students or whatever, and they had one coffee pot that was shared between different rooms, and they wanted to have it centrally located so they can keep an eye on it and when it was ready for coffee. And so they put the webcam on the internet and that was the start of, of the whole thing. And I think the page was up for like years mm-hmm. uh, before it finally came down sometime into the 90s. But yeah, that's that's funny. So anyway, back to NY Studio 107. So you've mentioned that you, it sounds like you mostly write craft CMS plugins. Am I correct? Uh, that's a decent bit of what I do. I also have been doing a whole lot with front-end and also Vite mm-hmm. lately, which uh, hopefully we get into talking a little bit about Vite if you folks are are willing, because sure. it's one of my favorite things in the world right now. Mm-hmm. So the reason I was asking about that is just, I was listening to your most recent podcast that came out and you were, and you have to refresh my memory who you're talking, oh, it was with uh, Strappy, yes. Jennifer Blumberg, and you were talking about Strappy. Yep. And you were talking about the uh, environment or the ecosystem around Strappy and uh, and plugins and Craft CMS plugins and stuff like that. It's interesting to see the different ecosystems and how they approach that. Mm. And a WordPress obviously has a bazillion different plugins and they're all, people make money off them because you have to pay for them. Where Drupal was very, what's the term I'm looking for? Add something. They were strong that they didn't want to do that. And people had mm-hmm. brought up cases of of having some type of marketplace where you could pay for modules, but the way they licensed it, initially it was the new two license, I think. I forget which license it was. Basically it said, if you use this, you can't sell it because you're using somebody's open source. And then you see, you know, WordPress obviously has a huge paid ecosystem. Ecosystem, it sound, and it sounds like Craft has something very similar, and maybe Strappy is looking heading towards that way. So, yeah, I'm curious to hear from your end how that how that works, both both from a code standpoint, and then and packaging and so on, and and how that environment works, at least in Craft. Well, just in general, modern web development is very, the ask is very large, right? Reasons Vue exists, that's why Nuxt exists, that's why all exists is is because the ask is very large in terms of expected to create. So it's unrealistic to expect um, a web developer to sit down and be able to, from scratch, a very, very complicated bespoke site without using some kind of building block to build it, right? Whether it's Vue or Nuxt or, you know, whatever it ends up being. And in the case of a lot of the JavaScript front-end frameworks, you're going to end up using various node packages to do this, that, or the other thing. And it's a similar in craft in that the product itself provides a base, but there also are going to be plenty of things. So SEO is a perfect example of something that you generally have an additional package that's going to help you out with it. So for instance, in Vue, you would use Vue Meta, which would help in terms of rendering out the stuff and a couple of things that would help you do it. But that's how it works in craft things that you can just put together. It's still very bespoke relative to something like WordPress in terms of it is not typically for the the smaller projects because there's a lot of custom development. And if there isn't a lot of custom development, I wouldn't use it. But it is very powerful and flexible in that manner. But I do think that the marketplace around these things or the end, whatever your tooling is, whether it's craft or it's VR or, you know, whatever it ends up being is so because what we're being asked to build is so complicated. All of that is going to be in the core of a single package. And there's no way that we're going to bespoke right every single thing, every time. So we really need to rely on something, whether it's plugins, node packages, composer packages, Ruby gems, you know, whatever it ends up being. Right. But I guess the question is, Drupal, obviously, 
survives with open source modules. If you contribute a module, it's available and it can be used it versus paid plugins. Right. So what do you see as the advantage to having a paid ecosystem where you have to uh, where you have to buy and, and relicense the plugins that you want to use? I think it's a motivator. I think that if you have skin in the game, and that it, so typically a lot of the node packages that we see out there, and we've all done it. We've done a Google search. We found the node package that does the thing that we want. And we go to the GitHub that hasn't been updated in three years. And we're like, your skin runs cold and you're just like, use it. You know, I don't know. It seems kind of risky. I do think like I love open source. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely. So when I am relying that there's some additional motivator involved to keep people involved in updating the thing that I am then going to be relying now. Obviously, money isn't the only motivator. I think a lot of these packages get started to fill a specific client need. For instance, I'm developing something. I need to be able to build something. Oh, I might as well just publish this in case anyone else wants to use it. But then what happens is a lot of the times you, you walk away, need for it again. So you're not maintaining it. Now, you do have larger modules like you would, you're talking about in the community. And enough people have a vested interest in it. That, that works out as well in terms of things being maintained. Just found that money is a, a decent motivator for keeping things around. There are lots of different ways you can make money, right? So if you want to just keep the source code pure, you can make money from services adjunct to the particular thing. There are plenty of companies in the Drupal space that make money adjunct to Drupal. You can make money support by providing different support levels for organizations that are willing to pay for it. My biggest complaint about pure stuff is just, I think the people, or I should say the entities, that really, truly benefit from it. These large companies are not paying what they should be paying. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. That's a complaint you frequently hear. Large corporations, you know, making tons of money and they aren't, they don't contribute one cent. You know, they think, oh, we're contributing code. That's good. <laughs> well, right. okay. Right. And I so that would be, you know, I'm not saying one is necessarily better than the other. I'm just saying that I have observed that for smaller ecosystems, if there is some kind of monetary incentive to do more than just write this thing and walk away or write this thing from a very specific thing that solves my use case and instead write it from a more general perspective of could solve a number of people's use cases. I've just seen it work out a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a, a bigger discussion, you know, monetizing open source and there's different roads. You know, you got people like Evan Yu who have like Patreon and there's, you know, some of your more well-known people, but that's that's yes. probably more few and far between a rare error than your common developer who's trying to contribute something and, you know, just to uh, and needs to pay for their time somehow. They can't necessarily take yeah. time away from work to maintain something. And so, yeah, it's definitely a, a big topic for sure. Fine. Nobody should worry about Evan. <laughs> you know, but, uh, revenue streams that he has and deservedly so. You know, I think sure. it's fantastic that he's doing well. And I look at it that I am building my business on. I want them to succeed as well, right? So I want Evan to be doing well. I do to even innovate in this space in a way that it's and in a similar manner, other companies that I I don't mind that they're doing well. I don't want them to go away. I want this right. that I spent a bunch of time learning. I want it to stick around, whatever it takes to make that happen. And there is people will say, oh, sponsorships and you know what? I mean, a lot of the GitHub sponsors, you can make some money from them, but they really take other people that maintain packages are just kind of trading money back and forth to an extent. <laughs> right. And you don't, it's a little bit better than that for the higher profile. But even so, still, I think it's not addressing my main kind of complaint about the ecosystem, which is the larger companies are making so much money off of all this stuff are really not contributing. 
to the GitHub sponsorship stuff in any meaningful way that, that I've seen. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so what do you think before we get into Vue technical stuff? Do you think uh, Vue is going to need some sort of paid plugin ecosystem at some point? Well, need is a strong word, right? Because I think that I think that it can flourish just fine without a paid ecosystem. One of the things I will say is that I'm I'm old enough that I was at the WWDC launch for the iPhone. And originally the iPhone was closed. It was not open to developers. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Steve Jobs said, well, just make a web app. And it ended up being that that wasn't realistic. The technology just wasn't quite there yet to do that. Mm-hmm. And we actually got a developer kit. One of the, initially what they did is they didn't open up to everybody. They opened it up to certain developers. We got a developer kit. We started making stuff for them. It wasn't this huge ecosystem was opened up. This financial ecosystem was opened up around the iPhone. And the the apps, the iPhone really took off. I mean, it was a success. It wasn't the absolute roaring success that it is until this ecosystem formed around it that it 100% has to be paid especially in the in the case of but it would be interesting to see it would be interesting happening if some of these smaller developers i know some very talented people that if they could spend all their time in packages that other developers could use they would do it like they wouldn't then work at whatever their corporate job is or work on client work or, or you know whatever they got to do to pay but right now, it's just really difficult for people to do that. It would be really, really difficult for someone to quit working on just SEO for Nuxt. Like, how would right. you do that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. I suppose the only other, the one way around that is to do it. You get good enough and then people pay you to do work for them on that stuff that you like doing. Sure. You know, maybe customizations or something. But that's that takes right. some work, you know, to get notoriety. And, and Well, the, the problem here is scale, though. Right. So the problem with doing... and. I, I do that kind of work too, and I enjoy that kind of work actually. Um, but the problem there is scale. So if you make a product, you the product you can sell many many copies of the product. You can only sell one copy. If you're the expert, and the work that you have done some or causes people to want to hire you. Well, you only have so a week that you can rent out. You know you can't yeah. duplicate yourself. Right. Yeah? Well, I don't know. Cloning technology seems to be coming along. So <laughs> you know who knows. <laughs> At some and I point. Don't know- like, I don't know if it's going to get there. I mean, I know that there there's some people listening There's that are probably open source purists and they're like, oh, this Andrew guy's a jerk. I, I don't like anything he's saying. But I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm also looking at the in the React community. Some of the folks who originally made React Router are working on something called Remix.run, which is a paid product. And it's it's crazy because it's one of the few fully gated paid products that I've seen in the JavaScript ecosystem. and one of the things they, they, they said is that in the first, uh, I'm going to get this quote wrong, but it, it, the idea is right. In the first month of, of making this a gated paid product, they made more than the last two years that they did from GitHub sponsorships or something like that. You know what I mean? Which kind of shows you that the. Yeah, well, I can see that. Yeah, it's just it's hard to know if the market's there until you actually try to tap it. But uh... yeah, or yeah, Adam Watham comes out with this tailwind css thing and does an amazing css is still free open source they'd spend lots of time better but he has a a product ui that he sells along with it and well with that you know i don't know i think well he also had his initial project was that design book and i have it i just haven't gone through it yeah um and I, I forget the name of it already. I have to go look it up. But I know that was his initial thing. I love Tailwind UI. I paid for it. I paid for lifetime membership just because I use it so much with uh, with different things. Tailwind's awesome. Example but, where 
you know, that that's an example. It's another open source avenue is you create the thing and then you can create a product around the thing. But it's interesting, right. you know, some people are instead of instead of kind of skirting the issue, you're not really making money and, you know, I'm not making money from this thing, so it's okay. I'm making money from this thing over here. Some people are from the thing itself, but there's no ecosystem or economy or, or, or that type of thing. You know, if I wanted to spend the next year on some amazing uh, package for Vue.js that was so much easier for people to build client websites, where do I sell it? I mean, I guess I could just make my own site and sell it, but mm -hmm. there's no place for these things. And arguably, the system for Vue and React and all of these things are big enough that they are, they're going to proceed whether that comes or not. I just think it would be a really world to see what would happen if there was a financial incentive for people that wanted to make the building blocks to be able to, to monetize that and turn it into a product. Sure. I guess the only downside that I can see to something like that is, let's say you're like me or any number of, especially newer people that are learning how to program and you want to create a little, you know, you're just working on building some little view app to do this, you know, not your to do's, maybe something a little more involved. And here's a plugin, but great. Now you got to pay for it. And all you want to do is play with it. And, right. and, and you're not going to sell it or you're not going to do anything with it. You know, I could see that sort of being a disincentive. I guess it depends on how cheap it is and how bad you really want it as compared to writing it yourself. Right. Well, there are ways around this, right? I mean, you can have it where the the in local development, the thing is free and doesn't need to be licensed. Right. And one of the things that I have found is that, you know, I've been selling plugins in the in the craft CMS ecosystem for a while. And I've also sold product in one way or another for almost my entire life it is for a certain client not buying the software. They're not. They're they're buying initially they're buying the solution that the software offers. They're really buying is they're buying your support. So or maybe I'm a, a freelancer or a consultant and I'm building a website for a client and I need budget. So I decide to pick a particular package or a particular the reason why I pick it is how supported it is, right? Because I don't want to sure. pick something that's just going to fall apart. That is provided here is the support that you're getting from the plugin developer or the package developer if a particular feature is needed. I think it's interesting. There are tons of developers that, that are in the that make money by doing client work. Client wants me to build a website. Cool. I'm cool with taking money from that client to build that website. I don't see a huge difference from that in terms of for from a another agency developer who wants to buy my package to help them building for their client. You know what I mean? It, it seems like a difference in some stuff. Right, All right. So I think we could go down that rabbit trail for quite a while. So let's come back yeah. to the main trail. <laughs> let's talk about Dev Mode FM. So why don't you give us a little background on that podcast, when it started, how long you've been doing it, um, so on and so forth. Yeah, so Dev Mode is a podcast. I just kind of, uh, a buddy of mine and I were at a conference. I'm talking, we're like, you know, we really should make a, a podcast. And I'm like, sure no. not. Like, <laughs> let's do it. So we started it. Back in, I think, 2017, something like that. And every okay. two weeks, without fail, we've been doing episodes. Now, obviously, podcasts are typically about what you know. So right. initially, a lot of the uh, discussion was around craft because we're using that. That is branched out into Gatsby and Nuxt and Next and a whole bunch of other front-end frameworks. So I we try to kind of hit the spectrum of anything involving modern web sounds or looks cool. And I love it as a way where I can just pull people on and say, yeah, I'm really interested in Vite. Like, let me talk to someone who knows something about Vite 
because this sounds really cool. It's a really, it's a fun forum for being able to do that. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum. And I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. Yeah, I look at it as uh, as not so much. I'm certainly not an expert by any stretch of the imagination in JavaScript or view. And so for me... Another panelist has mentioned this well, both this podcast and JavaScript Jabber, is that we get on smart people, you know, people that are smarter than us and know what we're talking about, and we learn a ton of stuff. Yeah. You know, we've had Google search DevRels and yeah. all kinds of different companies and well-known people and, you know, famous people like you. And and so it's uh, it's just a great way to to learn. You've had some, you have a number of panels. I think I've heard somewhere you've had like five or six different panelists in the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it gets pretty crazy. <laughs> So the, here's the thing that I think makes yours stand out. One of the things that makes your podcast stand out, and I wrote a couple of these down so I can, so I can uh, uh, give, a, give some examples is, is how you get Uh-oh. people to tell you about their product. Uh-huh. So here, here's three of them, and I, wrote, I went and noted these down. So recently you had on Ben Hong. Yep. And it says, if you're out on the frozen ice of Lake Ontario in mid-February and you jumped into a hole cut in the ice for your polar plunge, you're freezing your butt off. And some guy extends his hands out to help you out of the ice cold water. And he says, I'll pull you out if you tell me what Veed is. What would you say? And get him to tell it. Before that, uh, you were talking to your brother-in-law, Will Brower, about Next. And he said, if you woke up, passed out on the floor with a carpet in your face in Kyoto, Japan, and you had a really bad headache, your breath smelled like alcohol and your right arm really hurt. And you asked your friend, hey, what happened last night? I don't remember anything. And he said, I'll tell you if you tell me what Next is. What would you tell him? And then the the last one was, uh, I forgot the guy, I didn't write down the guy's name, with uh, oh, Josh, with Vizzy. It says, if mm-hmm. you were at Lake Boomingen, and I had to go look that up, by the way, up at Fraser Island, and your feet are dangling in the crystal blue water, and you see the red stain from the tea trees kind of inching toward your leg, and you have these nice white pants on, and you don't want them to get stained, and someone says, hey, listen, Josh, what is this Vizzy plug-in thing that you just released? What would you tell him? <laughs> so, so the thing I've always wanted to ask you about about those is are those like real things that you've situations you've been in or is it just things you make up off the top of your head or how do you those are those are creative questions that me being the non-creative type would never be able to come up with but i've always loved them (laughs) just curious to see where they come from so the vast majority of them are things that actually happened um (laughs) i'm i'm never i'm not going to reveal you know which are true and which are false and and all that kind of stuff but the vast majority of them are situations that that i've been in and I just think, you know, it originally started by accident. We had on Brandon Kelly, who is one of the founders of Pixel and Tonic, who makes Craft CMS. We had him on in one of the early episodes. And I have a, a cordial, sorry, I should say a friendly relationship with him. And I just wanted to do something to break the ice, to, to set the mood, because we wanted to do a podcast that's more if we went out to a bar and we were just talking, you know what I mean? Like not not so formal and joking around is okay and, right. you know, curse words are all right and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. And I think I originally asked him something ridiculous, like if you were a lumber Pacific Northwest and you were cutting down a tree, or he, had just, he would never, ever be in. 
And I thought it was just to, to break the ice and to, to set the tone. And it just sort of became a thing after that. But I, I you, know, you, you put people on the spot, you, you set the tone for the show, and away you go. But yeah, most of them are real. Some that are contrived. I don't remember exactly which ones. But all three of the ones that you mentioned, they were real deal. They happened. <laughs> I'd love to hear the story about being drunk in Kyoto sometime. But, uh, but we'll move on. Whenever you want. <laughs> <laughs> The polar plunge. Oh, I've done that before, and that's uh, yeah, that's, that's cool. It's not good. So view. So let's talk about view, since this is a view podcast. After all, let's do it. Um, yeah, I hope we particular... haven't caused people to to tune out or to get angrier with me for charging large for open source stuff. Oh right. <laughs> um, get some angry comments. <laughs> so so how did you get into view coming from the craft world? I started to get into it just because I've always been technology and i am always looking for you know and uh, what is coming down the pike and i saw it just as an experiment locally and i'm like wow this is really cool i'm really enjoying this i love the fact that the state managing for me just simplifies on the front end immeasurably you know you're not it's not very spaghetti code that is just kind of looks like someone dumped over a dinner on the floor you know <laughs> it's right. it's actually structured and the reactivity of it was just it was almost magic it was so cool. Like the, everyone, I know we're all jaded right now. Back to the first time that you use Vue and you, you made some kind of a component and then you changed a value in it and it just changed on the screen. Like for me, that was that was magical. I was like, wow, this is cool. Yeah, I a um, little quick history. I came in initially and did the JavaScript framework with AngularJS okay. uh, version one, which I believe what Evan was on the team for that one because I know he came out of Google, had been on the I Angular think he worked team. at Adobe or something. I, I may have it wrong. I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was was uh, Angular. You're probably right. And then, you know, when Angular 2 came out, I said, uh, thanks, but no thanks, and started playing around and looked at Vue and, you know, the templating, you know, that makes it real simple. And, and then your script section, you know, the single file component, the reactivity and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that really yeah. jumped out at me. And I started playing with it and I was like, hey, this is cool. Yeah, and the other thing is in a brave new world to some extent. It also was very, as the templating syntax was very similar to a lot of these other languages like Twig and Mustache sure. and Antlers and all. Yep. It was it mm-hmm. was really it was really nice and comfortable. Mm-hmm. So then you, now you mentioned Nuxt as well. So are you, I take it you're using these for like client side client products? Excuse me, projects. Maybe where you're using Craft as your content management on the back end or standalone stuff. What uh, what kind of things do you use it for? Uh, believe it or not, a lot of the Craft CMS have view front ends for them. So they they are there are. Uh, a whole lot of interactive bits that are craft CP. And I'm doing those all in Vue, for instance. Obviously, I'm not using Nux for that, but I'm using Vue for that. And it's fantastic. I love it. In terms of, it's a mix. It depends on what the client needs and wants. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally am just waiting for Nux 3. And right. You and many, many other people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the reason is that I, I've for about a year now and just love it. I think mm-hmm. Fantastic. So looking forward to that being baked in that I have done tons of intricate Webpack pack five configs. So I'm yeah. not I'm not afraid of it. The way Vite works and how quickly quick it is, just incredible. But the other one is TypeScript. So, you know, my background is in strictly type languages and having TypeScript just makes me feel like home. You know, JavaScript never felt great to me just because I come from that strongly typed background. But TypeScript, in addition to the type enforcement, also the autocomplete that your editor gives you. I mean, it's just everything is beautiful. And that also is going to be in Nux 3, in addition to 
tons of other improvements that I, I think they just talked about at, uh, what was it called? Nuxt, not Nuxt World. What was the, the recent one, the recent conference that just they just did? I know what you're talking about because I saw all kinds of, it was like last week or I think it was like the yeah, 15th. Yeah. Uh, 15th I, I attended it and I don't remember the name. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, we'll have to look that up. Um, I mean, I, I attended it, meaning I watched it online. It was an online Right, because it was virtual. Nuxt right? Nation. Nuxt Nation. Nuxt Nation. There you go. Yeah. yeah. But in, in addition to a ton of other features that they announced at Nuxt Nation, I have worked on a number of projects that are using Nuxt, but I've been waiting for Nuxt 3 to be my own projects. And I'm, I'm really, I can't wait. So other than the TypeScript and Veep being built in, are there other Nuxt features that you're looking forward to with version 3? Those are the, the two big ones. I think the uh -huh. support of Suspense, which comes along with Vue 3, is going to be pretty fantastic. I like mm -hmm. the way that they have refactored the rendering engine. It They, they refactored, called it Nitro. And right. they made the rendering engine such that it can work on the front end, it can work in the back end, it can work on the left, can work all over the place. And the, the work that they've done abstracting it sounds to me like it's going to open up a whole lot of doors and use this product. Hmm. So give me an example. So an example, let's say that we wanted to have the the renderer work just in a Lambda function on a, on a per component basis. You should be able to do that. Now, I can't tell you why you might want to do that now, but I bet you, <laughs> I bet you. Somebody will is, come up with a way to do it. That Well, and there is going to be a good reason to do it at some point. Mm -hmm. A lot of the things that, that seem or sound crazy at the time, just a couple of years down the road, you never know. Well, I would think that in order for them to put a lot of time into developing some sort of feature like that, there had to be a use case for it, a defined use case. I would certainly hope so as compared to if you build it, they will come <laughs> type of approach. But yeah, I mean, the, the main thing is it seems like a fresh start for Nux because they literally rethought and rewrote everything while still apparently there's going to be this Nux bridge thing that's going to help you come over. Next two to next three, uh -huh. but they it looks like a fresh start, and that seemed like a great time for me to then start using it for my own stuff. You know what I mean? Um, uh -huh. I've got some sites like the Dev Mode site, for instance, and a couple that are all more traditional sites on the front end, but they're not fully static sites, or they're not server side rendered or serverless rendered. I'm really interested, man. I'm looking forward to to trying it out. So how do, so out of curiosity, how do you handle SEO for stuff like that that's straight view and that's not server side rendered? Is that is it in components where that really isn't a concern, or do you have other two ways that you handle that? If I'm using Craft CMS as a backend, which I use, I've got a plugin that I wrote called SEOmatic, the the client part of the SEO. Mm -hmm. So the the server part or the rendering part is actually not that big of a deal. The hard thing. Not the hard thing, but the more involved thing is picking in there. What's going to go in the description, the keywords, and mm -hmm. making sure all the, the various things are generated, et cetera, et cetera. That handles that, and it has a GraphQL API. So in your Nux build, you can just pull in all of the data, potentially do some transformations on it, and then just pass it off to, to view meta, and away you go. You know, it'll, it'll just work. So it's the request. The information is coming from the CMS and it's coming through via GraphQL. You can do a little bit of massaging if you need to, anything that you, you want to do with it. And then Nuxt is just going to render it out via ViewMeta on the on the rendered page. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I've used ViewMeta quite a bit on, on some other sites. So yeah, I can see where how you would fit those two together for sure. The rendering part, like the ViewMeta, which it just basically taking JSON data and it's in the right place. And when it, it boils down to like what it's doing, that's pretty much all it's doing. There's a little bit more than that. 
the the actual generation of it is something that can be a little more involved and just the basic SEO title description type of thing. Like when you start getting into schema.org, JSON-LD, it, it takes a little bit of work and a little bit of knowledge to, to build that out. Right. So you had also mentioned Veet. We've talked about Veet. Mm. So Veet, you know, for those who are uninformed, other than starting a whole discussion about how do you pronounce it that I hear over podcasts everywhere, Veet, Bite, Vit, but I've heard say it's Veet. It's French for fast, if I remember correctly. So Veet is basically a partial replacement for, for Webpack in that it handles the hot module reloading and the dev mode stuff, but then it, it uses Rollup, I believe, for the bundling to for what you actually deploy, correct? Correct. Okay, and it's what makes it so fast is it uses native ES modules, uses browser capabilities for loading modules. And here's um, where it gets cool. So the cool, so if you do a typical Webpack build, it will build a dependency graph of all of your stuff and it, it bundles everything up. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you've used Webpack for these things, either directly or directly. And there's a whole bundling process that goes on. And server, it has a whole bunch of optimization, a bit quicker, a little bit better at doing that. But ultimately, there still is a dependency graph that's involved. The cool thing about V is all you do is put a script tag and point it at the thing that you want. So let's say, for instance, you want to use TypeScript. You have V to your project and a script source equals app.ts. You are done. You are done. There's no configuration that you have to do to set up TypeScript to make Babel work, you know, none of that stuff. It all just works, and it's so cool. It, it's almost like coding in the early 2000s where you would just do, you would just write a script tag and you would just right. point it at the thing you wanted to load and it would right. load, <laughs> you know? And the way it works is that there's a piece of middleware sitting there, kind of like Webpack Dev Server, that is looking for the request for the, the thing. And if it's a TypeScript thing, for instance, it's like, oh, okay. I know how to use ESBuild to transpile this TypeScript into something the browser can use, and it will all just do that on the fly. So there isn't any bundling going in, in on until you actually... So it just makes it so fast to work with. And the biggest thing for me, again, is just there's just no setup. Like you just, you import uh, your dot, uh, C, uh, .scss or your uh, post-css or whatever, and it knows what to do with it. And it does the right thing. Like it's just, it's beautiful. It is. And I think what a lot of people are liking and I'm seeing it being used in other places is that with version two, it's not view specific, you know, so yes. I've heard of people using it with React, you know, Angular. Yep. I know version one, you know, when you first just started messing around with it one weekend is, was view specific. You had to be using view, but with version two, he made it more, I think abstracted would be the correct term so that it can be yep. used with other frameworks. And that certainly is adding to its, its uh, popularity. Developers that are using it, Svelte has right. has adopted it. Even right. people that are just using vanilla JS have mm -hmm. adopted it, and it's it's just it's really nice because these things work. Is we have a certain to us. The platform doesn't do what we want, so we start on top of it, right? So back when Webpack was created, there was, there was no module format. Like that was just something that did not. So okay, we're going to make all this tooling to make that stuff happen. The platform catches up, and what Evan noticed apparently is that the platform had caught up enough that there's a whole lot of stuff from the Webpack step, step cut out and leverage the platform instead, mm -hmm. something on top of it. And that's essentially what Vite is. It's leveraging the modern platform. And you don't have to worry about supporting old browsers because when you're doing your production build, it will still transpile everything down to work on your IE8. Like All of that stuff can still happen. 
But the point is in local development, you're using a modern browser. Like why not leverage that in local dev? And that, that's what makes it amazing to me. Yeah, the times are so fast. It's like, hit, you know, change your code and boom, it's already there. You're not waiting for a, for a rebuild for sure. It's almost like the whole of bundling build process is just this terrible nightmare phase that we all went through together, you know? <laughs> and, we're, and we're coming out of it. And now, now it is as simple as just putting a script tag in there, just like it was in the early 2000s. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I made, I've made this point in past episodes that, you know, now it's sort of like the way you described about how you hit your platform catches up and pretty soon you just utilize what's in the platform reminds me yep. of jQuery and, and jQuery and vanilla JavaScript. You know, when jQuery first came out, it was doing all the stuff that was so painful to do in vanilla JavaScript because it just wasn't there. And as time's gone on, all, a lot of those features have been added to, you know, your regular JavaScript engines. And yep. so now that's not quite so necessary. The same strip Webpack. Webpack was doing stuff that nobody else was doing, you know? Yep. And so, hey, here's a tool to do it. Now it's like, oh, we want to get rid of Webpack. Webpack still powers a lot of the internet. <laughs> Agreed. I think it isn't going anywhere anytime soon, but it was, Agreed. you know, go back and look at when it first came out and it was a lifesaver for people. So I just always think of that when people want to bash it. Oh, Webpack sucks, it's this and that. Well, comparatively, yeah, maybe it doesn't have the features, but for what it does and for when it came out, it was the bomb. And, you know, Webpack is still the right choice for some projects, depending on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of the projects that I tend to be working on, it just, the edge cases I care less about. There are other projects where the edge cases are super important. I agree with you. Webpack is going to be around forever in one form or another. And there is also nothing preventing them from adopting the same philosophy, you know, in terms of leveraging the platform. There's nothing to say that Webpack can't evolve more. Developer of Webpack was recently hired for Cell. So this actually kind of mm. ironically gets back to early discussion about how are people going to make money from this thing? I mean, at the time, he wasn't quite making enough Webpack to do it full time. And someone just decided to. Right. Yeah. That's Sean, Sean something. What's his name? No, it's not Sean. This is terrible that I can't remember his name. Hold on a second. Uh, okay. That's fine. Now, Veet is, I believe, just Vue 3. Isn't there a plugin or library or something that will allow you to use it with Vue 2? Or is it strictly there, Vue there 3? Going? Yep, it works It works with Vue 2. You can make it work with Nux 2. I haven't done it. I know some brave friends of mine that have made it work <laughs> with, with uh, Nux 2 and TypeScript. And there, I'm sure there's some people out there that are going to say, Andrew, it works fine. Okay, it, it works, but it takes more work to do it than I am willing right. to do. I am willing to wait for next three before I decide to do that. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's some ecosystem catching up that has to do. My uh, main job with GovTribe, we have a huge view Laravel MongoDB app. I mean, like terabytes of data. And right. so we're looking at, you know, the upgrade to view three and what's involved. And we're sort of looking around. Yeah, there's a few things that we want to catch up first before we start to make that jump. And that will be a, a big jump when we do it just because of the size of the application that we have. But yeah. I think when things start to catch up, then you'll definitely start to see more and more. Tobias uh, Coppers is the original developer of Webpack. And uh, over okay. the years, there have been obviously contributions from all sorts of developers, large and small, to make it into what it is. So I'm by no means saying it, it is only that has done it, but he's the uh, initial developer and he was hired by the hosting company Vercel and they want him to develop and improve Webpack. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So now getting back to Vue, and we were talking earlier about the uh, the monolith structure, how, you know, back in the early days of, of the consumer web, you know, you had your lamp, lamp stack was pretty much your dominant structure, or even just 
before PHP, heck, just plain HTML, CSS. I can still remember and learning both those things from a website and in a book called HTML Goodies. Yeah. Uh, back in the late 90s. And so, you know, the, you get into these stacks and now you got the pending. So it was monolith and then you go to all your different uh, pieces plugged together, you know, the mean stack and pretty soon it's now you're swinging back to where you can really plug and play the different parts together. So one project that I've mentioned that I am playing with a lot is something like Inertia. You've seen Inertia JS, yep. mm-hmm. Jonathan Reinick's product. Yep. We've had him on before, and he's going to be on JavaScript Jabber here in a month or so. Is really slick because you can use a Node or a Laravel or a Ruby backend with a Vue or React or Angular right. front end, and how it handles all the in-between is 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 really slick. Um, so that's you know that's one of my favorite things to use. Well, that's uh, funny. Every we just that is not released yet, but it's on what it what even is JavaScript, I think is what we're talking about. And mm-hmm. it's really interesting because everything that's old is new again to some extent. Sure. Um, a lot of the, you know, originally JavaScript was just, it was a toy language for just doing scripting and then it became a full-fledged language. And then developers just put everything in the client, right? They just threw this massive bundle down the pike and said, all right, good luck. <laughs> good luck, little 2G phone rendering this thing. And then they realized, well, maybe that's not the best way to do it. And then started rendering some stuff on the back end, sort of PHP style. And then came up with a partial uh, where they would render it on the server and then hydrate it. And they'd have the isomorphic JavaScript running in both places. Mm-hmm. Like the serverless rendering is something that Vercel has where it will either return edge, render the thing, and then return right. it. Super similar to Varnish or Fast CGI Cache from the or, or backend system world. And like you're talking about another way to do it, right? Is you can have something where JavaScript on the front end, but something else is going to update and render the partial and return it, and your responsibility is stitching it into the DOM. And it's just yet yeah. another way of doing this. I personally think that one of the most script is that it runs in the browser, both sides of your stack, your front end and your back. It allows people to get really good at one language. And I think right. that's fantastic from a productivity point of view. I just think that that is a huge, huge selling point for it. Oh, yeah. Isomorphic JavaScript was you know all the rage for a while with Node.js, yeah. and now you got, you know, Randall doing Dino for sure. I personally, I like sticking with with the PHP just because it's my familiarity. Yeah. You know, we use Laravel as our backend, and so for me, that gives me inertia. Gave me that real comfort level because I had you know different applications where I needed CMS. I didn't want to install some huge you know Drupal is just huge anymore, or even a WordPress or anything else. And so I was looking at online CMSs, and I'm like, oh, okay, there's pros and cons there. Yeah. Um, and then with inertia, I can just do whatever the heck I want. I can small, I can go big, you know, I can do all, use all the tools like MySQL or relational databases that I'm familiar with. Yep. So for me, it's, it's, it's an awesome tool with a lot of flexibility. And that's what the pain point is, right? So whenever we're building these applications at our client server, and this has been mm-hmm. around since <laughs> the network, is the idea of a, a client server. And then you have thin clients, which is where mm-hmm. is done on the back end, which is mm-hmm. closer to what Inertia.js is pushing you towards. Then you have thick clients where most is done on the front end. And, and those have been around before even JavaScript was invented, right? This paradigm and the balancing between the two. I think that one of the things that interests me in getting really good at this JavaScript thing is I, I do like the idea that I'm going to be able to use one language in both places. Now, I realize that there are going to be some differences when I'm doing stuff in the back end and certain APIs that aren't available, although Dino is, is doing a really interesting job making sure that that isn't a big deal. But I just, there's so much to know 
getting really good at one language as opposed to just okay at one and really good at the other. Now, I realized that that, and it's funny because I'm saying that, but the majority of the work that I do is split in exactly the way you're saying your work is, right? Right. Work that I do is PHP on the back end. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a little bit of Go, but the vast majority is PHP on the back end. And then on the front end is JavaScript, whether vanilla or with a framework. So even though I'm I'm preaching it, I'm not really practicing it, but I, I want to, Steve. Like I, I just getting super at JavaScript. And that's why I'm interested in, in heading down this road with, with Nuxt and Vue and very likely some other front end languages. Because to a point where I don't hate JavaScript anymore. And I think that's important. <laughs> Right. All right. So we need to start wrapping up. So anything else real quick that uh, you wanted to cover? View Nux? I mean, you know, nothing really, except that if you eat, I would say definitely check it out. And you're going to be in for a treat with a Vite when ver- <laughs> Nux version three comes out. Definitely don't just pick Webpack by default uh, when that comes out, because you're going to be able to use Webpack five with it as well. Right. But give Vite a try. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. All right. So view marketers uh, catch that phrase. You uh, have a treat with Vite. <laughs> there are so many cheesy puns. Oh, yes. Well, listeners of this podcast will know that that's right up my alley. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood. And I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have this situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. All righty. So let's wrap it up and we'll move on to picks. So since you're the guest, we'll let you go first. All right. I have two. For us. All right. I do. I have two. One is edible and one is not. The edible one are wasabi, peanut, I just, I've become addicted to these things lately. They're like, it's a peanut with a crunchy shell of coffee. And I just, I love them. I think they're just absolutely fantastic. Super, super good. You can find oh them just where health food stores. Yeah, I'm sure you can get them from Amazon. You can get them anywhere. Try my nuts is the first thing that came up when I typed that in. But the, so many double <laughs> entendres can be made there. And the, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. The other one is what, what a show that my wife and I have been watching on HBO Max is called The White Lotus. Like a mini series, so there's only five or six episodes in it. Right. 
we really enjoyed it. We had a good time with it. White Lotus. Yeah, wasabi I had at one time, and I think my mouth just about melted. Uh, I, I have the a, real stuff or horseradish? Uh, not sure. It was at a sushi place here in Portland that uh, an Indian friend of mine took me to one time. But the vast, have, vast majority, really... even of Japanese restaurants in, especially in this country, but also sometimes in Japan, it's it's horseradish. But the real wasabi, it's a little bit different of a taste, and I think a little bit more pleasant of a taste. Mm. Whatever it was, I was, yeah, I can't handle the spicy stuff a lot. So for me, that was like one by, oh, that, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, that's spicy stuff. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Like a nice little a little tweak, little kind of wake you up, and then you enjoy the crunchiness and the, the taste of the peanuts. Cool. So for my picks, I'll do my my normal dad jokes. This is, as I always like to say, the high point of the podcast, I'm sure, for some silent majority out there. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I went to see my shrink a little while ago, and I was telling him, you know, I'm just so afraid of big, dark, empty spaces. And he said, avoid. I said, oh, great advice. Thank you very much. <sighs> I, I appreciate the groans. That's that's oh. better than no reaction. And then my daughter and my son actually are both, uh, they work at a restaurant, a nice restaurant here in town. And my daughter is a server. And she told me she came up to this, this one couple and was introducing herself and talking to him. She said, comfortable, sir? He said, no, no, come for food. Come for table, <sighs> come for food. Anyway. I get it. Yes. So those are our picks <laughs> for the week. I would like to thank Andrew very much for coming on and being my special guest today and talking about all kinds of things. And if you want to listen to his podcast, devmode.fm is the website, and you can find that title in all the places that you find podcasts as well. And if people, I always forget this, people want to get a hold of you or talk to you and say, hey, that was a great podcast with Steve. Uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, they can get a hold of me on Twitter. At NYStudio107. All right, Twitter, we will put that in the show notes. All righty, well, thanks again, and we will talk to everybody next time on Views on View. Thanks for having me, Steve. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C A C H E F L Y.com to learn more.